Hello and welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in December 2022. This episode is all about the teleological argument of the existence of God, often called the argument from design. So we'll be thinking about what the argument is. We're going to be looking at various thinkers who've discussed it, such as Aquinas, Paley, Hume and Swinburne, and we're going to think about challenges to it. We'll also see what else we get on to as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Matt Harris, a teacher at Cheltenham College. Hi, Matt. Hi, Simon. Good to be back. And we've got Michael Platt, who teaches at Harvey Grammar School in Folkestone. Hi, Michael. Hi, Simon. Good to be on again. Uh, Great to have both of you with us. Okay, so we're going to talk about the teleological argument for the existence of God. Uh, This argument is one of the main arguments given in different religious traditions and at different times for the existence of God, and as such, appears on a number of specifications. It's part of the AQA philosophy spec, the religious studies specifications from both OCR and NXL and others. It's also on the IB. Um, If you're studying Scottish hires, then although it isn't referenced, it's good to be aware of it, particularly because David Hume was interested in it, as we're going to hear. So let's start with the basic idea of the argument. As I mentioned, it goes under two names, traditionally the teleological argument and the argument from design. Um, Should we just start off by briefly explaining these two labels? Um, Who wants to start things off for us, please? Yeah, I I can start with that. So, yeah, the design and teleological argument, they're a posterior, it's an a posteriori argument. Uh, so it comes from observation of the natural world and drawing conclusions uh, as they see appropriate. They, they use the term design and teleology interchangeably, but I think there's different emphasis when you use those different terms. So um, in terms of teleology, it's coming through Aristotle to Aquinas. Um, so looking at the end and purpose of things. So you look at the world and you, well, people believe that you see things with purpose, uh, things that move towards the purpose. So, for example, trees grow towards the sun. They photosynthesize. All trees around the world do it. There's a regularity and purpose in nature. And if you've got regularity and purpose in nature, then you must have a purposer of that purpose, something to give it that purpose. And then design, I suppose, comes from the complexity of nature. So things like the eye the way uh, ecological systems fit together, like the things that humans design, they look like they're put together with structure and intricacy. So again, you must need a designer to explain that complexity that we observe in the world. Great. That's uh, lovely. Thanks, Michael. And uh, you just mentioned Aquinas there, and he's mentioned on the OCR specification in in particular. Uh, And I suppose a lot of the Theological argument, the argument from design, kind of starts with Aquinas. So let's let's just think about Aquinas first. Then, Matt, do you want to explain Aquinas's ideas for us? Yeah, thanks, Simon. So uh, Aquinas's design arguments, uh, his teleological argument, is the fifth of his five ways for um, proving the existence of God. And his fifth way goes as follows: Aquinas writes, "We see that things which lack knowledge, such as natural bodies, act for an end." And this is evident from their acting always or nearly always in the same way, so as to obtain the best results. Hence, hence it is plain that they achieve their end not fortuitously, but designedly. Now, whatever lacks knowledge cannot move towards an end unless it be directed by some being endowed with knowledge and intelligence. As the arrow is directed by the archer, therefore some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and this being we call God. 
and end the quote there. So Aquinas' archer analogy is helping him illustrate the point that natural things appear to humans as goal-directed, moving to achieve their final course. Hence the name often given to design arguments, teleological argument, because telos means purpose or end. And for me, a large assumption here is that teleological systems require an intelligence directing them, but I'm sure we're going to get into some criticisms of Aquinas fairly shortly. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, so why don't we... um uh, think about some of those criticisms then, because we're going to see. We're going to. There's probably going to be an interplay between people who've uh, thought and defended some version of the teleological argument, and then kind of criticisms of it. So, so what do we think is going on then with Aquinas? Because that I think will help with these big themes of the forwards and 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 backwards ideas about what's going on. So, uh, like with any of these design arguments, as we'll see, particularly Aquinas and Paley, there's always a problem with analogy. Um, and whether you kind of beg the question through the analogy that you use. So whether you're thinking of your analogy and then imposing that upon the world rather than the world representing the analogy that you've used. So I know, I think, was it Swinburne um, was critical of, of Aquinas's argument because the, the fact that he uses an arrow and an archer analogy, you then fit the evidence to fit the analogy that you have rather than the, the observation leading you to that analogy. So there's there's problems with analogies with a lot of these arguments. Yeah, great. Matt, any thoughts from you on that? Yeah, you know, when when Michael was talking, I was really thinking about this Archer analogy that if Aquinas is interested in things which are regular, you, you need not find more than one arrow. So you could be at, I don't know, a country fair and you shoot one arrow, you get a bullseye, I think, well, I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> um, so he's trying to refer to anecdotally to something to as an, as an analogy which doesn't really fit what he wants to... Uh, say he's he observes in nature so i I think even if his point is good his analogy is poor yeah good so i think um i think suppose there's a general point here for um theological and and philosophical thinking and arguments in that analogies can sometimes be very powerful they can help us understand something that might be difficult or complicated um because they kind of convey interesting information and kind of show particular similarities or ideas that we're trying to get at but they can really lead us astray as well particularly if we uh, you should always ask uh, students you know why has someone picked this particular idea or instance to be an analogy for the thing that we're really focusing on um the, the target actually um that's a kind of intended joke, given we're thinking about archers and arrows. And it, and does the analogy work, or is it actually just saying something about the thing we've the thing that we're focusing on right now, rather than the the target thing? Uh, so in this case, is it really saying something about archers and arrows, uh, rather than something we really want to be focusing on, which is the world or the or the universe? Great. So uh, any any other things we want to say about Aquinas or? Um, well, I think going back to the analogy, the assumption of a target is a, is the major problem, um, and assuming there is a the, the things are directing towards a particular target is a, a controversial point and not something that is necessarily evident from from nature necessarily. I don't think. Okay, great. So then things really hot up in in at least in the story of the design argument, the quite potted story that we often have um, at, at this stage. When we're thinking about people such as David Hume and, and William Paley, and David Hume really went to town on uh, arguments of the existence of God, in particular the, the design arguments. So, does someone introduce some of the ideas that David Hume had? Because he was quite critical, wasn't he? Yeah, um, it's interesting that for me, Hume acts as a good 
um, source of criticism concerning Paley. I, I normally, even though Hume wrote before Paley, uh, what, what I tend to do if I'm teaching is, it's been a few years since we've taught this, is teach Paley first and then say, well, poor old Paley should have uh, read Hume before we put pen to paper. Would it be all right if we went into Paley first? Let's and then do Paley first. Yeah. So in fact, that, that's a kind of in, in, important point then. Because um, I remember when I was when I was studying this when I was 17, and I had to keep on reminding myself that Paley wrote, it was about 20 years after Hume, wasn't he? Something like that. And in fact, if only Paley had read Hume, that he possibly wouldn't have put pen to paper. So let's, so let's do Paley first, and then we'll do Hume. But it's important for you all to bear in mind, students, that Hume wrote his criticisms before Paley wrote. Uh, Matt, uh, kick us off with Paley then. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks. So what we find with Paley is that uh, this is famous rock and watch analogy. So yet another analogy. So Paley says, imagine if you were kind of wandering around in the countryside and you came across a pocket watch. What you would think is that if you happened upon it, you would think, oh, that's designed because it has two important features to it. It's got complexity, it's got lots of moving parts, such as springs and coils and dials and what have you, and hands. Um, and it's evidently for some kind of purpose, and of course that's for telling the time. So in other words, the complexity works together in order to fulfill its purpose of telling the time. Whereas if you contrast that with something like a rock, if you came across a rock, you'd think, oh, there it is, there's another thing, but it doesn't have the complexity and there's no obvious purpose. Of course, you can use a rock for lots of different things. You can, you can throw it at somebody or you can stack them up or you could grind them down and do all sorts of things. But the purpose has to be imputed to it. It doesn't uh, manifest itself, obviously, like the purpose of something like a watch does. And of course, everybody would know that um, the watch is made by some intelligence and everyone would know it's made by human intelligence. But then Paley wants to say that what about something which uh, is a bit like both the watch and the rock? Of course, the rock is a natural feature, but it's undesigned. But the watch is a human-made, intelligent, uh, intelligently designed thing, which uh, does have complexity in design. And the thing which he lights upon it is, of course, the human eye, because it has features like the watch insofar as uh, it's complex. It has like an iris, a pupil, a retina, optic nerve, all those sorts of things working together for the common purpose of seeing. But like the rock, it is something natural. Now, we're not going to be authors of our own eyes. So to what can we attribute this intelligently designed, complex, purposeful, natural feature, the human eye? Well, it makes sense to point to some higher power and that he called God. So again, it's an a posteriori argument working back from evidence in the world. And he uses this, this analogy to show that we um, should consider our eyes. And therefore, um, he makes this jump to the rest of the universe designed by God. That's great. Thanks, Matt. Really helpful. Michael, any thoughts from you on Paley? No, just, yeah, just to make it clear, uh, because some students don't make that jump in their essay. Sometimes they finish with the watch and say the watch has a designer. And then they don't necessarily go on to explain the examples like food webs and the eye and the complex systems and, and everything in nature, he's making the point that obviously you then need a designer to have created that. And I suppose we mentioned that Hume wrote before Paley, um, but I think it's worth pointing out that natural theology was widely read in, I think it was, isn't it, set text at Cambridge even after they knew of Hume's objections, because it is a, a powerful argument that Paley makes. 
And I think Paley goes on to explain, you know, the, the appearance of design is kind of undeniable. We, we do attribute purpose to things in, in nature. We want to find purpose. We all often ask, well, why does that happen? Why do things work as they do? Is that, you know, that's the heart of science. Surely we want to know how things work, why things work, how things fit together. Um, so I think while sometimes you'll read books and listen to other people who are quick to dismiss paleo, I think there is that still that powerful idea that we do look at things and we do think that they have a purpose. And we, that idea of purpose is quite a powerful idea, I think. Okay, great. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, both of you. Okay, so we've mentioned him a couple of times. Should we get on to David Hume then uh, and think about all his criticisms of the of the argument? Yeah, I'm quite happy to. So you know, Hume's arguments against the design arguments are many and varied. And, you know, his dialogues concerning natural religion, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was published posthumously um, in order to prevent it from being too scandalous. But what I love is that... They're, they're very varied arguments, but they're all ingenious. And Vaughan, I particularly enjoy him pushing analogy to its logical or perhaps illogical conclusions. It's almost as though he's saying, okay, you Aquinas and, well, maybe anticipating the likes of Paley, even though he hadn't written yet, you can have your analogies. Let's see what happens when we really push them. So what I like is that he says that when we observe complex things, I always use the example of something like a cruise ship. It's just so massive and complex that um, this is, of course, not an example that Hume uses. The more complex the thing, the more, from our experience, we can see that people, more people are involved in the designing of it. The, the more complex, more people have to be involved to share their expertise in order to design it. And if you say, well, say you take the universe, the complex food webs, the universe as a whole, that's far more complex than a cruise ship. So by analogy, we'd expect far more people to be involved in the design of the universe than a cruise ship. So in other words, if we take design seriously, if we take analogy seriously, we shouldn't be concluding with monotheism, we should be concluding with polytheism, which of course goes against classical theism. So he's saying, okay, let's take your argument style and see what we can do with it and come up with different conclusions. And then he said, well, again, from observation, let's take a look around us at the world. There are lots of things which aren't so very well designed. We've got fault lines leading to earthquakes or volcanoes. They're not very well designed. A perfect world or a better world wouldn't have these features. So again, what does that say about the designer? Maybe it was a, he uses terms such as like infant deity or senile deity. So maybe it's not an omnipotent or an omniscient god. Again, that takes um, very pointed pot shots at classical theism. And then he has arguments from randomness. So what's often been referred to as the Epicurean hypothesis, that in infinite uh, time of infinite particles, you'd come up with something which appears designed. So again, against kind of anticipating Paley, even if we like to say that there is design evidence in nature, that we'd like to think that there is design in nature or things which appear designed, there might not be any intelligence behind it. It could just be uh, all down to chance, a bit like monkeys with typewriters. Uh, where they'd eventually come up with the works of Shakespeare or the works of Dickens. But I think, was it in the, in the Simpsons where Homer or was it um, Mr. Burns is there with, with these monkeys having to say something like, the best of times, the blurst of times, stupid monkey, and the slaps the monkey, which of course is very politically incorrect these days. But maybe if he gave, gave the monkeys a bit more time, you know, the, the, the Dickens would have uh, you know, manifested itself. 
So I've probably forgotten a whole host of Hume's arguments, but the ones about pushing an allergy by looking for the imperfections in nature and then looking at chances, the, the Epicurean hypothesis, those are, th- those are three which jump out to me. Um, I'm sure there are some more. Uh, thanks, Matt. Those, those three are, are very good ones. Those actually from, again, when I was studying it when I was a teenager, those are the three that stick in my mind. Uh, Michael, any more thoughts from you? Yeah, I think it's worth. Obviously, we both teach the OCR spec, um, and this the the argument, the, the criticisms of Hume are criticisms of observation in general, so not just the teleological argument. And I think the analogy that's always used is the scales analogy. So, like you've got something on one side of the scales that's clearly being weighed down on the other side of the scales, but if you couldn't see, to what extent can you infer, and what inferences are justified for what is weighing down? what you can see so you might be able to say well it's heavier than what's on the side of the scales that you can see uh you might say but that's kind of about it really and then if you go well there's an infinite weight on the other side that's kind of an over explanation of what you observe so even if you did observe design in the universe to say it's an infinite omnipotent designer then you've kind of over explained what's what's on your side of the scales and there's lots and lots of various things that you could say with with good reason that could be on the other side of the scales and you kind of have to be a bit more humble and say actually we don't know so even if you could say yes there is design attributing it to something like a god or an infinite designer kind of goes beyond the available evidence um so that's always a good analogy and that also goes for the cosmological argument as well even if you could say the universe must have a cause what you can say about that cause is obviously limited by you know the stuff you observe and and that's actually not giving you a huge amount of information yeah and it's, uh, it goes back to hume's empiricism doesn't it and i think another one of his criticisms is coming back to me but we wouldn't know what an undesigned universe looks like so we've got nothing to compare it with because we've not experienced it although i think in in the process of making that point he's perhaps shot himself in the foot because we we wouldn't be here to do the observing if we were in an undesigned universe so there is that perhaps meta point but yeah, you're absolutely right michael in saying that his arguments against the design argument can often be used very effectively against the you know, so-called cosmological arguments as well. Yeah. So, in fact, just to pause there for, for students as a kind of stretch exercise. Um, uh, so, I mean, certainly across a number of these specifications, Hume comes in and we get bits of criticism here. But as uh, Michael uh, intimated and, and, and Matthew, just made very clear so Hume's an an empiricist and he's kind of empiricism and his kind of skepticism goes across lots of different areas in epistemology uh, and and kind of metaphysics Uh, it's not just about uh, arguments to the existence of God and as as Michael was emphasizing he's really Hume is really thinking about the available evidence you have and not drawing being very skeptical of the inferences that people uh, draw upon so he's very famous uh, thoughts about induction and cause and effect are are are, are important to, to think about here. Um, so every day you see the sun rising. Is it therefore necessary that the sun has to rise? Will the sun rise tomorrow? Well, it's possible, perhaps even likely, but you can't even say that. You just know that uh, it's happened before. And anything when you say the sun will rise tomorrow, that's just an inference. And it and it may turn out to be true and may be false and you need to be uh, quite skeptical about that and in fact actually he can be very skeptical in his writings and then uh, afterwards he says but look like everyone else i go and drink in the evening and i play billiards and when i want to have one billiard ball hit another billiard ball 
I expect it to hit a third billiard ball, it's fine, right? So he's quite a normal human being as well. But he is quite famous for his scepticism, which reaches across his philosophy. And in fact, interestingly, because um, I, I mention it often, but we haven't got on yet, at least in the episodes uh, at the end of 2022, to record lots of material for Scottish hires. But in Scottish hires, they do do a lot of textual work with both Descartes and Hume. So that's where the empiricism comes greatly to the fore. Uh, in the Scottish Highness, which is very interesting. So, oh, sorry, Michael, you want to come in? Yeah, sorry. Just while we're on that point, because um, on the OCR spec, there's often a, a bullet point that's often, well, I'm guilty of this. I often forget it. What, Which are more convincing, a priori arguments for the existence of God or a posteriori arguments for the existence of God? And I think this, what we were just saying, is a, an excellent point to bring up there because a posteriori arguments, no matter how convincing, no matter how strong your analogy are, will only kind of get you to kind of 99% certainty. They can't give you full certainty for the existence of God. So, you know, like if I come home tonight and I find my house has been burgled, I go, well, I probably think there was a burglar, um, but there could have been two, there could have been three, there could have been four, and I can collect loads of evidence, but there will always be a chance that one person went undetected in my house at some point. Whereas a priori arguments like the ontological argument, if they hold, they're 100% certain, but that's the big question is whether they do hold or not. But that's not a likelihood question. So it's something worth, I thought, bringing up there for that particular part of the spec. Because it's often it's there and people forget it's there sometimes for the OCR spec. Great. Really important point. Thanks, Michael. OK, so, yeah, just so I raised the, the thought just to finish off this segment. Uh, uh, two of you convinced by Hume so far? Powerful? The, the only thing to say is, of course, is that you can use scientific observations to poke holes in at least some of his points, take the Epicurean hypothesis. If he's saying, okay, you know, the monkeys and typewriters being infinite particles or infinite atoms in infinite time, then we'll come up with apparent design. Well, you could say from scientific observations and, and theories such as the Big Bang, we know that time started at a certain point. So we're not, um, we're not playing with infinite time here. So at least one of his arguments doesn't work uh, very well. Some people also say that against his kind of senile deity, infant deity, or even the um, the polytheism arguments, that if God is omniscient and omnipotent, then he 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 can do things that we that we couldn't, or maybe he's limiting his power in some way. But then you know, the response to that is, if we're meant to be just starting with what we observe, you, you, without circular reason, you cannot presume that God has these attributes, and then to be uh, the result of of observation rather than premises in some kind of arguments um, because it wouldn't then be a genuinely a posteriori argument for God's existence that way. So I would say the Epicurean hypothesis is weak, but his other arguments are, are strong. Okay, thanks, Matt. Michael? I think um, you, you've got further criticisms where he argues for maybe a polytheistic view or um, and, and the analogy that's often used is like you know a cruise ship or if you imagine a ship, it's got multiple designers, but it, I don't think it necessarily does. I think a cruise ship has one designer. You might have a designer saying those toilets designed by someone else go there, the decking that's designed by someone else, but there's only one designer overall of a, a cruise ship. You might have different makers. You could make that claim, but, um, and I will come on to this with, with Swinburne and, and fine tuning later on perhaps as well. Is if you look at the universe, some people would argue that there does seem to be harmony there does seem to be one design. There's, there's the laws that function on Earth are the same laws that function in the distant universe. The laws, well, we assume that function now 
functioned in the past. There doesn't seem to be lots of different ideas being thrown about. In there does there does seem to be a harmonious world. So while it's not a slam dunk criticism of Hume's point, I think you can reasonably say that there is one designer rather than multiple designers competing against one another with different ideas. So yeah, I think that there are legitimate criticisms there for for Hume. Okay, great. Well, all I say is from what I hear of some cruise ship holidays, perhaps there are multiple designers than there is. <laughs> that's a that's a, that's a different point, perhaps. Okay, great. Well, let's leave things there and we'll see you in the next part. So Michael's just mentioned Swinburne and fine tuning. So we're going to come on to think about different versions of the argument from design and think about modern science and and thoughts about that and see how that plays with uh, teleological arguments. But that's to come after you've heard a little bit of music. And welcome back. Before we move into this part, this is just to remind you to check out our website. So if you Google for my name, Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N, you should find my personal website. If you go to that, there's some tabs at the top and there's one tab which says Pod Schools. If you click on that, you'll see uh, links to all of the episodes We've already recorded, though they can be found on Apple and Spotify and Google and wherever else. Uh, But there's also a timetable um, and a list of episodes that are coming up. If you see anything that you're interested in, please just email me with questions and comments, uh, and we'll try to use them in future episodes. Uh, We're recording December 22. We've got a few more Philosophy of Religion episodes to come, and then we're going to move into Philosophy of Mind and do some other things as well. Um, if you are listening to an episode and you've got some questions about it, uh, but we've already recorded, then please email me. We might do a few Q and A's with some teachers uh, at some point and fire some questions at them and see if they can answer them. I'm sure Michael and Matt would be up for that. Okay, so we've introduced the teleological argument and looked at some historical discussions of it. Let's move on to the present day, shall we? Because it's important to realise that some of these arguments for the existence of God are still living and they might have different formats, but some of the ideas still remain and, and come back in, in different ways. So uh, I remember, Michael, when we were recording the episode on the ontological argument for the existence of God, it was either in the recording itself or, or at some point you said uh, you always prefer the ontological argument because when you get into the teleological argument, you start discussing it and the kids are always rolling their eyes and saying, what about evolution, sir? Um, so yeah, let's... Yeah, that- that's the experience I've had. <laughs> so let's then think about evolution. So Matt, why don't you start us off in on, on evolution and, and bring us up to date? Yeah, thanks, Simon. Um, I mean, evolution is not exactly up to date in some ways. It's been around for a good while, but um, in different forms, it's it's kept coming back. And uh, particularly through someone like Richard Dawkins as the blind watchmaker as a rather stinging um, critique of uh, theism in general and uh, the design arguments in particular. So, of course, it goes back to Charles Darwin's uh, The Origin of Species and uh, his theory of evolution through natural selection. And what this does, I'm not going to go into the science of it too much, but what, what it does in terms of um, the design argument is it gives competing explanation and in some ways uh, an evidence-based alternative through the fossil record to um, intelligent design. Because the apparent design which we find in things such as the human eye uh, can be explained through uh, theory of evolution, through natural selection, where there's no 
thing. There's no intelligence guiding it. So it can account for how through um, over a vast period of time we get to where we are now in terms of species being where they are and and also even um, ecosystems and individual parts of, of human or animal bodies such as the BI being what they are with uh, the apparent complexity and purpose which they exhibit. So in other words, design is an appearance, not a reality. And there's a process which is not guided by an any kind of intelligence which can account for it. And this is a devastating critique, many people think, of um, particularly Paley's design arguments, reliant as it is not on, say, regularity, but design qua purpose. In other words, individual things such as the human eye, which are meant to be designed. So, of course, this has led to uh, ways to reconcile God with evolution, such as theistic e- evolution, where God somehow nudges evolution on at particularly difficult points, such as being able to explain the gulf in intelligence between humans and, and other animals. But it's it's still it's still problematic, and many people say that using Occam's razor, why is theistic evolution even required when you've got the fossil record and uh, a perfectly good theory which is supported in, in many different ways which can do the job without bringing God into it. So do not multiply entities beyond necessity. God is an unnecessary hypothesis, according to critics of theistic evolution. And so this is where it pretty much left the design argument before the likes of Swinburne picked it up, where people thought it was just dead in the water. And between Swinburne and uh, alternatives, kind of quasi-design arguments, such as the anthropic principles, sometimes called fine-tuning, that's where in the 20th century we find these developments, which we'll get on to talking about, very shortly. That's great. Thanks, uh, Matt. Before we get on to Swinburne, Michael, any, any things to add about evolution from your point of view? No, I mean, I mean there are counter arguments. There's irreducible complexity. There, there are arguments that claim that um, I find it very hard to explain irreducible complexity. It gets into biology, which is very messy. And I was never very good at biology at school. But my, my broad understanding is if you think of a mousetrap, Everything in that mousetrap is required for the mousetrap to function. If you take one part of it out, uh, it ceases to function. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't do anything. So for evolution to be true for all things, everything that makes up a, a, an organism now would have to have a some sort of function in a previous iteration of that organism, because otherwise, why would it be there? So irreducible complexity claims that there are things like flagellum motors in cells and stuff that would perform no function in an earlier iteration so they could only be put there by a designer my understanding of the biology is that nothing has been conclusively shown to be irreducibly complex but there are christians particular christians out there who would claim that there are examples of irreducible complexity and i've got to be honest i've listened to hour and a half podcasts where people have gone I'm going to explain irreducible complexity. I'm not a Christian, I'm a scientist. Um, and by the end, I'm very convinced that they're a Christian, not a scientist. Um, but I, that, that might be my ignorance of that subject. But there are some criticisms of irreducible complexity. Some also question the amount of time required. So they don't question necessarily evolution, but they would say to get the complexity we have now, you need a far larger swathe of time. But again, I, I from a scientific point of view, I don't know how much of that holds up, but there are arguments if you if you want to present them, I suppose. 
Okay, great. Thank you. So let's then move on to Richard Swinburne, who uh, we've mentioned a couple of times, who uh, was for a long time a professor at the University of Oxford and is, is now retired. But he quite famously, uh, as we said, had a, had a good go at the teleological argument or the argument from design and tried to resurrect it. So, Michael, do you want to explain the, the broad outlines of, of his view for us? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it, it, an important point with Swinburne in general is that he, he builds a case for God based on uh, a cumulative case and probability. So the, the design argument is is one kind of part of his much broader argument for God. And actually, there, there, he, if you pick up his book, I think, Is There a God? It's about £10 on Amazon. It's actually quite readable, I find. Swinburne, it, it does, he does explain things quite plainly and quite clearly. It's a good A-level text if you if you want to go into this in a bit more detail. But essentially, he would argue that, yes, evolution is true, but you need the conditions to allow evolution to occur. So the natural laws, the regularity of those natural laws. Um, So for us to evolve, we need the right cosmological constants. We need the right universe to be in. Uh, We need regularity and consistency in our laws. So if for some reason, every time I drop stuff, one time it fell, one time it floated up, sometimes the laws function in one way, sometimes they function in another, you wouldn't have evolution as we have it uh, today. So you need the right conditions for intelligent life to occur. You need the universe to be life promoting rather than life prohibiting. So you need something to explain why those laws are in place. Um, so he would argue that it's more probable that God exists than the universe, universe just randomly threw up those right conditions. And he also uses another more thought experiment than analogy. But if, if you've been kidnapped and you sat in a chair and someone feeds 10 packs of cards into a random card dealer, and they said, unless it deals 10 aces, the gun will fire and you will die. Um, and the aces throw up they throw up 10 aces um you might go well yeah it's it's just pure luck but swimming goes no you'd, you'd want an explanation so if, if i you know go home and i explain you know this is what happened to me you go, how are you here oh, it's just luck no one's going to go oh yeah well i guess so <laughs> they go no you need to explain why though that thing occurred so you know he's kind of preempting these arguments that maybe there are multiverse multiverses or loads of different universes or big bangs big crunches Whatever your explanation is, because we've got such precise and suitable conditions, that does beg for an explanation. You would need some reason why we have the conditions that have given rise to complexity, complex life, intelligent life. Great. Thanks, uh, Michael. Uh, Matt, any thoughts from you about that? Because anyway, the way Michael explained, the way Swinburne, in fact, explains it, takes us straight into what's often referred to as fine tuning and, 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 and other things as well, that where we're talking really about the conditions for for life, which seems so kind of very amazing. So why don't you come in, Matt? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I thought Michael's account of Swinburne's argument there is a, you know, a very good one and shows how very interesting it is because it, it does get us away from um, the criticisms of the design argument. People thought, okay, there was Darwin. He showed that um, Paley's argument was wrong. We can find a better evidence-based competing explanations for design qua purpose, in other words, individual things like the eye. But this, you know, as, as Michael said, takes it a step step back. It almost, we revisit Aquinas's arguments to do with regularity, but then brought up to date and looked at through the lens of more modern science. 
so I, mean, I think it's pretty persuasive. But then, you know, Michael mentioned about multi-universes and, and things like that, or, or the multiverse theory. This is where it starts to fall down. I, I think almost Swinburne is conflating universe with planets. Okay, we've got life on this planet, but what about other planets? So when you consider the vastness of the universe, I think there's something like planets in the universe between one to 10 trillion. So it's, it's almost unimaginable. So perhaps Swinburne is right in thinking we need an explanation for why there's life here. In other words, why there are constants right for life to develop. So we can't get evolution off the ground if the conditions aren't right for life in the first place. But even the rest of our galaxy looks barren, let alone what about the rest of the universe. Imagine if we are um, just in a corner of the universe where there is life. Uh, if we think about constants such as gravity and, and heat and things like that, in our particular, uh, in, in, in our solar system, we're close enough uh, to the sun to get some heat, but not so close that we fry. We're far enough away that we can get some, um, some coolness when, we, when, when it's required about freezing. We've got the right amount of gravity, so we're not squashed or we're not floating away. Um, it all just seems right for life. Sometimes it's referred to as the Goldilocks effect. So although this seems amazing from our standpoint, if we had the ability to travel the rest of the universe, which of course we don't, or at least not currently, or not for the foreseeable future, imagine if we travelled around the rest of the universe and found no other life. That would be a bit sad, but then it would make what we've got here seem much less amazing and much less surprising, having grown organically out of the constants which happen to be there. And then if you introduce the multiverse theory, if we're then talking about infinite universes, then we are back with Hume's Epicurean Hypothesis infinite universe infinite typewriters um there'll be every universe or universe just like this one but perhaps one thing is just slightly different like i might actually have hair which i can style rather than ridiculous straight hair which has always been a myself and um you know one of, one of those lamentable things but i could have a really good haircut in an alternative universe but everything else might be the same even down to extremely trivial facts. It could be one um, tiny little hair on my head, which is slightly different. So in which case, it wouldn't be surprising that things are the way they are. We might still want an explanation for it, but we, we could be in one of the very few universes where we're capable of having the capacity to ask for an explanation. But then, of course, it invites a bigger question, where do all these multiverses come from? But then we'll have some cosmological argument rather than some design arguments. Great. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, just some thoughts from me then, uh, from, from what I've read about fine-tuning. I suppose this is kind of interesting then for students to think about, because you went one way with your explanation. I thought you were going to go another way. But in fact, everything you said made perfect sense. But I suppose it's, uh, I'm about to explain it, I suppose it's illustrative for the students to take some material and, and show that actually the philosophy can go one way or the other, because you were explaining things and saying, look, look at life on Earth. Uh, it's kind of, um, we've got these very, very narrow window, the Goldilocks effect and so on. We could travel around the rest of the, the uh, universe. There's no other life there. Life is going to happen at some point, and it just so happens that it happens here. It's actually not so amazing. There's going to be life somewhere, right? But then someone else can look at that and say, isn't it amazing that the constants were just right here? And in fact, therefore, life is so amazing because it happened, <laughs> because it because the chances of it happening are so slim. Well, so a universe half uh, empty kind of person. That's right, universe half empty rather than half full. Or if it's if it's one to ten trillion planets, it's not quite halves, is it? So it's interesting for students to say, look, I mean, let's imagine that uh, that every scientist agrees on this, and they probably don't, but I'm, I'm sure there's there's kind of consensus enough enough consensus. 
And so actually it can play both ways. It can either be, well, it's monkeys with typewriters. There's going to be at least some life somewhere that's recognizable as, as life, as, as conscious embodied life. Or you go, isn't it amazing? The chances of this happening are so rare that uh, it's still remarkable. And that suggests that there must be something that's, that's going on uh, behind it all, uh, which we're going to call God. Um, which is making sure that constants are just right for life. I suppose it goes back to the um, the thought experiment Michael gave from Swinburne about the dealing of the cards, right? It's either complete chance, well, that's just how it is, or you want an explanation because it's so such so rare. Uh, Michael, do you want to come back in? Yeah, um, I was listening to a podcast recently, and I think um, he, uh, Philip Goff's been on your your Ooh. news podcast. I think he has, um, and he said of fine tuning versus problem of evil is a bit of a wash it's like a score draw if you want to use a football analogy and he kind of needs to move the debate on but i think it i I was listening to that and i realized this design argument will always be with us and it'll always be relevant because it's almost like whatever way you look at it like if you can say right we've got these cosmological constants because there's an infinite number of universe all with different constants um a religious person might try to go well, if you require an infinite number, why are there an infinite number of universes? There must be an infinite number of universes. So one would give rise to the conditions for life. Maybe this is how God chose to do it. Or if I turn around and said, right, I've taken up science tomorrow. Can't be that difficult, can it? Um, and I go, right, the cosmological constants are set because of this property of space-time. A religious person will go, well, why does the space-time have that property? And then you kind of go on and on and on. And either you have to say you get to a brute fact the cosmological constants of that, or we just have a multiverse or whatever it might be, or you go, well, I need an explanation and I need an explanation. So I think whatever scientific advances come in the future, even if you go, right, I've solved the fine-tuning problem, this is why we've fine-tuned it, you then go, well, why is that there and why is that there? So I think it's like it's always going to go on and on and on, and it's the problem of inference as well. So whatever explanation can be inferred for God or against God. So if you, you know, like you were saying, Simon, it's kind of a, it, I think it does end up in a, it, you can interpret it either way and it's whichever way you consider to be more reasonable and rational. But I, I do think that's what's good about this argument and may, maybe touch on this again later. But it, okay, I think it shows that belief in God is not irrational. Like people have rational reasons, whether you just agree that it's more rational, less rational in your opinion, I suppose, that inference, whether it's, valid and justified or whether you think there are problems with it but it's not just plucked out of the air i don't think great yeah just then a, a, a two quick adverts so yeah philip goff who's a friend of mine who's a philosopher at durham uh he's he's works in philosophy of mind he's very interested in panpsychism a big defender of it namely the the whole universe is is conscious but he's currently right now december 2022 just finishing off a new uh, popular philosophy book about why the universe has a purpose so uh, it's coming out soon. Uh, it may be by the time you listen to it, it's out. Who knows? Anyway, his name's Philip Goff, G-O-F-F. Second advert, if you're interested in reading more about fine-tuning, there's a great website called Thousand Word Philosophy, which is it does basically what it says on the tin. So it's basically summaries of loads of arguments, loads of ideas in a thousand words or fewer. And there's a really nice entry on the fine-tuning argument, uh, which is worth reading. Obviously, don't plagiarise it when you're writing essays for Matt, Michael, or anyone else. Um, It's very tempting, but it's just there for you to read and think about. 
Great. So let, let's let, let's let's draw things to a close then with with a bit of discussion. Actually, you started us already, Michael, um, building up what Matt and I had said. So, what about the two of you? Are you convinced by it? Do you think it's a good argument? Is it as good as some of the other arguments for the existence of God? I'd quite happily start because I think I do OCR. We do development in Christian thought, which um, moves on into the theology, and we have to do natural theology. Um, and I think it's very easy when you do philosophy to go, people believe in God on the basis of the cosmological, teleological argument. And I, 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 well, that's quite patently not true. And uh, I, I know William Lane Craig started a bit of controversy with his podcast recently because he talked about God being a properly basic fact. So what that means is me looking, I'm recording this on a computer, sorry to tear down the veil. We're not in the same room. We're on a computer. I'm looking at a computer I know that computer is there. I, that's knowledge. I believe I have knowledge that that computer is there. Now, Simon, being a philosopher, might be able to give me arguments for why that would be true philosophically, but that's not going to change my belief that that computer is there. It's, it's a properly basic fact to me. And what William Lane Craig argues is that belief in God is a properly basic fact. They know it, but these arguments demonstrate that those beliefs are reasonable. So I don't believe this computer is here based on Simon's philosophical arguments about truth and knowledge. I know it because it's there. So I, I think in terms of does it convince that there is a God, I think it can show that it's rational. I think you'd find a, you'd have a hard time trying to convince someone to believe in God on the basis of the argument alone. I think it comes from whether you have an experience. That's why I always say to my kids, if they go, are you religious? I go, no. I go, it's not because of arguments. It's, I just don't feel God there. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not persuaded in that direction. Yeah, so when I was studying uh, A-level religious studies, there was always quite a bit of discussion about belief and rationalism, and then we just started thinking about faith. And actually, at that point, I presume you, I don't know if you do it now. I haven't seen it on the OCR at Excel, but there was lots of material about Kierkegaard and leaps of faith and things like that. But we, that, that's that's something that's gone from the specifications. Never mind. Uh, Matt, any thoughts from you? I think that's... Aquinas and Paley's arguments aren't that convincing. I think there's something to Swinburne's. And then when we get into fine tuning, although for me it's undercut by the idea of a multiverse theory, but which is why for me the cosmological argument is more persuasive because then if you're getting into multiverses, where do the multiverses come from? For me, I know, Michael, you were saying that arguments might not convince people, but one I come back to every now and again, and like you, I'm not overly religious, but... The one that does get me from time to time in a moment of existential terror, it could be as, you know, a moment as simple as turning on the television or opening a fridge or whatever, just something as banal as a day-to-day activity. Sometimes I think, why am I here? Why is there something rather than nothing? The design argument ever gets me thinking that way, but the cosmological argument in terms of why are we here at all? Why am I able to do these most basic of things? Um, it, it, in other words, what the point I'm trying to drive at very obliquely is that the cosmological argument is more fundamental for me than the design arguments, because it can even deal with multiverses. Why are there different multiverses or an endless, an infinite number? Whereas once you introduce multiverse theory, undercuts Swinburne, undercuts FR Tenant's and the Anthropic Principle and all the others, because it suddenly makes them less unique. But in other words, the multiverse theory actually magnifies for, for how incredible the cosmological argument could be. Whether the cosmological argument leads to the god of of theism who knows it could lead anywhere but it kind of it points to there being some kind of higher power why is there something rather than nothing 
uh, which is kind of something very basic, which gets you existentially, whether it's, you know, whether you're rooting around for the brie and chutney and olives or whether you're just trying to find the World Cup on ITV and try to, you know, find your channels. It doesn't, you know, get can get you any time. Yeah, nice. And in fact, that actually uh, brings me to one thing we haven't mentioned yet, but probably worth mentioning is that I think you're right in saying many of the people we mentioned, perhaps all of them, they're, they're very much focused on the designer or the grand designer or the designer who has a purpose. But I think some people acknowledge quite explicitly that then it's another step as to whether this person is the is God or the traditional God of Judeo-Christian theology. Uh, and that's a kind of interesting thought, isn't it? So really what we're arguing for is it's a theological argument for a grand designer. And then it's another step about whether that's 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 uh, God. Michael, do you want to come back in? Yeah, I just thought, well, maybe to help the students with that point in particular, I suppose the best case you could make for uh, Judeo-Christian God on the basis of the design argument would be that it would have to be one of great knowledge. And if he designed everything or it designed everything in the universe um, and has knowledge of everything in the universe, that would be close to omniscience, I suppose. Um, have the power to create and design everything you're getting close to maximal power and i think swinburne makes this point it's like yeah you can't get to omnipotence but if you're going well yeah designer of everything cause of everything purpose of everything in the universe but doesn't mean they're not omnipotent he kind of goes well what would omnipotent mean then if it's if that's not it um and then benevolent that is possibly a wash because john stuart mill would say when you look at the world and it's not just it's not good it's not doesn't reward good and punish evil that is a bit of a wash but then paley would say you know there's great care there's great intricacy so maybe a benevolent so that's kind of the best you can kind of do for a judeo-christian god but again there's a lot of ifs buts and maybes to that um and yeah it, like you said i don't think it's as convincing as the cosmological argument but I suppose it does tell you a little bit more about the character of, of something because you, you've got more to go on, whereas the first cause could just be a prime mover. It could be, well, pretty much anything, really. Not, not anything, but it's, it's much more limited in terms of your knowledge. So it, well, pros and cons to the design argument, I would say, personally. Yeah, and it's, it's a great link to the problem of evil. And I know that Mill, on the old OCR spec, used to figure it much more than he does now. But you're right, yeah, the problem even comes in there. I think even Paley acknowledged in natural theology that um, the being which he can get to from looking at the world around him isn't necessarily good or benevolent in that sense, it, but it, it would be a being with great power and knowledge. So then, yeah, it is an open question about which god this is. Is this a god of Christianity or, or, or a different religion or no religion? Or does that matter? Because, of course, if, if you take someone like Aquinas, looking at observation, using observation, looking at the world around you, reflecting on yourself and your place in society and the universe is only meant to be one possible route to know about God. And, of course, revelation or divine law still has importance for someone like him. But, of course, that's got his own set of issues and, and debates surrounding it. Yeah. Great. Listen, let's uh, draw things to a close there. That's, a, I think, a good point to, to end on. And uh, we should thank our guests for being with us and giving up their time and their thoughts. So, Michael, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Enjoyed it. And Matt, thanks for coming on again as well to you. Yeah, thanks, Simon. That was, that was great. We enjoyed that. Uh, and thanks to you for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. Hope was uh, illuminating for on various points, particularly the, the argument as a whole. And I hope you uh, enjoy listening to some of our other episodes as well. Mm-hmm.